Good morning, and uh, I'm Tom. Welcome to uh, Leewood Campus of Christ Community, and we're really glad you are here. Uh, this morning, we are continuing our Advent series. We've entitled Songs That Sustain Us. And uh, last week, we learned the Psalms, in large part, are like a songbook of God's people who worship together, like us, on a, on a, on a morning and uh, these songs sustain them in powerful ways as they face their broken lives and broken worlds, not unlike ours. Uh, we also discovered last week that these songs were the songs that Jesus learned at a boy, as a boy, the songs he sang in a synagogue, the last words on his lips on the cross. Last week we looked at Psalm 33, which is an inspiring tapestry of hope. And we grasp these three truths. I hope we're with you last week if you were here, that God's word is true, God's plans are good, and God's love is constant. This morning, we're going to look at another song, Psalm 85, and here we're going to see God's peace has come to us. So let's bow for prayer uh, as we prepare to open our uh, eyes and our ears to God's word. Lord, our prayer is simple but profound. Clear the distractions from our hearts and minds and open us to your word. Speak to us, we pray, and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is something that we often feel deep down inside us, but something we don't often want to talk about. 17th century philosopher and French scientist Blaise Pascal said it perhaps as well as anyone could. He described it as a craving a helplessness, an empty print of a once trace of happiness. 19th century American writer Henry David Thoreau described it as a quiet desperation. Recently on a late night talk show with Conan O'Brien, comedian Louis C.K. speaks about our cell phone use and describes it this way. Watch. The thing is, I, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones yes. are taking away, yes. is the ability to just sit there like this. That's being a person, right? Yes. No one can, they gotta, uh, you gotta check. Because, there, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that, yes. Yes. Yes, I. Yes. Yes, Just I know that, what you're that talking knowledge about. that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it, you're in your car and you start going, oh no, here it comes <laughs> that I'm alone. Like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving, and then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second. Now, pretty profound for a comedian that's so popular today. Um, and he describes it as that thing, right? That forever empty we feel. Now, we may not describe it exactly like that, but our longing for inner peace and harmony and well-being is something all of us have. Sometimes we try to address it tethering our lives to smartphones or to embrace a crazy, busy, nutty schedule or 
an immersion in our favorite hobby. But at heart level, isn't it true we live anything but tranquil, peaceful lives? The most turbulent and chaotic place in the world is not some remote place on the planet out there, but the restlessness in the depths of your heart and mind. In spite of our technology, our material comforts, our many layers of financial security, the inner peace our hearts long for, that sense of well-being, remains hauntingly elusive to all of us. During this time of Christmas, which I get to be a little scroogey at times, especially when it means writing Christmas cards. And most of the time, I do this experience, as I write Christmas cards that talk about peace on earth, I find dripping irony because often there's not peace in my heart as I write that. If we are honest, and I think it's amplified during Advent season, the loneliness, emptiness, fear, and lots of anxiety are the regular inhabitants of our hearts. Peace is an infrequent, and if not, short-staying visitor, is it not? We live in troubling times with troubling hearts, and we search to fill that, to address that. We search in many different places, but the question for us is, will we find it? Are we looking for it in the right place? If you brought a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 85. Psalms are right in the middle of the Old Testament. You can kind of open up and find it. And like us, God's covenant people of old struggled with their own troubled hearts and troubled times, and they pursued heartfelt peace. And did they find it, and where did they find it? In Psalm 85, we sense this pursuit, and we encounter three essentials of which this corporate worship song builds to, the path to peace. You'll notice that we first ask for forgiveness, for God's forgiveness, we listen to God's voice and we delight in God's presence. This is the literary structure and flow of this corporate worship song, its lyrics. We ask God for forgiveness, we listen to God's voice, and we delight in God's presence. You'll notice first, we ask for God's forgiveness. Psalm 85 begins where our quest for experiencing true inner peace must begin, and that is in a restored relationship with God. A restored relationship with God, first and foremost, requires divine forgiveness. In other words, we see right off the bat that true peace, the peace our hearts long for, flows from forgiveness. In fact, the psalmist will spend seven verses, a lot of time in the lyrics of the song, focusing on a prayerful petition with this goal in mind. And it's interesting, in the first three verses, he sort of reminds God, as if God forgot, but he reminds God of God's restorative forgiveness in the past. And throughout the Psalms, what we will notice, and you will notice if you read the Old Testament, this word peace emerges a lot. Peace is the most famous Hebrew word. We all know it. It is shalom here. And shalom is a comprehensive term for all creation's well-being and harmony. But here, the primary emphasis in the first phrase of the Psalm points us to its emphasis. It is not primarily the comprehensive nature of harmony. It is relational peace. And we see this in verses 4 through 7. Relational restoration is at the heart of God's people gathering before him and seeking renewed intimacy with God. Look at me at verses 4 through 7. Notice the energy. Restore us, O God. 
again for our salvation and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast, your tender, your loyal love. Oh Lord, grant us your salvation. Notice the lyrics in this stanza of this ancient corporate worship song are framed in a prayerful petition for God's salvation. God's salvation emerges twice. It is the primary theme in verses 4 and 7. You'll see it. What does it mean? Well, in this context, it means to be rescued from dire peril. Think of it like a firefighter uh, rescues someone at the last minute from a burning home or a burning building. Or uh, a rescue ship goes out and rescues survivors as a ship is sinking in the sea. Here, the same idea and intensity emerges from the text. It is the dire peril of the human life, the most dire of all perils. Here is sin against a holy God. Now, when we hear the word sin, it often sounds like a pastor word, since we're chief of sinners, we know a lot about that, uh, or a religious term, but it's really important in understanding our heart's quest. Here, this word points to why the peace of our hearts is so elusive to us. Because nothing is more perilous than sin, because it vandalizes God's design for our lives and his good world, and it fractures our relationship with God. It leaves us with what Louis C.K. describes as that thing, that forever empty feel we feel. So no wonder a holy, perfect, righteous God who created us with relational intimacy in mind, who wants what is best for you and me and the world he created, why he hates sin so furiously. No wonder God desires to rescue us from sin's perilous and enslaving grasp. Now notice with me in verses 4 through 7, this is not primarily an individual prayer. I might use some poor English here, but if you'll spare me. Look at all the us's in this text. Do you see it? Together, God's people gather together, and as a congregation in one voice, they cry out to God in song. Restore us again. Revive us again, God. Show us your tender love again. In your grace, grant us your salvation. See, the songs that Jesus sang, these songs, influenced the prayer he taught us. Most famous prayer in all the world, right? We call it the Lord's Prayer. And notice the emphasis of the prayer is not primarily individual petition, it's collective petition. Do you hear it? Right? Let's just review it for a minute. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What? Give us this day our daily bread. And what? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need to grasp in our individualistic culture how we often distort the biblical text. While forgiveness from individual sin is essential, don't miss that, if we are going to have peace with God, we must not miss, friends, that there is a collective aspect to forgiveness as well. See, sin is not only committed on an individual level, it is committed on a societal, communal level as well. If we're going to be a local church community where God's peace is manifest 
forgiveness of our collective sins of both omission and commission must be addressed in our corporate worship. Let's take, for example, the egregious sin of racism. We could take many kinds of sins of injustice. Let's take this egregious sin. See, racism is not determined by the color of skin we have, but by the pride in our hearts. While racism is an individual sin, it is also a systemic sin, a systemic manifestation that is in need of collective repentance and forgiveness as well. The idols we worship are not only individual, they are collective. The idols of selfishness, of sex, of wealth, of image, of materialism, or political power, they are not merely personal idols, they are also societal. Idolatry must be confessed not only individually, but collectively. Sin against God is not only my sin, it is our sin. Not only have I sinned against the holy righteous God, and believe me, I have, but we have sinned against a holy righteous God as a people. This is why in the Old Testament you hear this over and over again in some of the most exemplary lives. I mean, think of Esther, think of Joseph, think of Daniel. We just did this wonderful series in exile through Daniel. Daniel's life was like perfect, it seemed, right? I mean, he's exemplary. And yet when he prays, what does he say in Daniel 9.5? We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments. We have not listened. Wow. It's important for us to understand that Advent is a time not only of personal confession, but collective confession. It's not only a time of personal longing, it's a time of collective longing to experience the peace in our hearts, in our communities, as well as in the world we long for. And it's not surprising that when you study church history, this little Psalm 85, it's one of those that gets missed all the time. But it was a central psalm in how Advent was celebrated for literally centuries in the church. This was the central psalm. Wow. When God's people cry out to him, Oh Lord, show us your tender, steadfast love. Oh Lord, grant to us your salvation. Because a restored relationship with God requires forgiveness first and foremost. True peace flows from forgiveness. But notice where this song goes, the lyrics go. It is the literary hinge, the center is verse 8. And here we see that it is not only true peace that flows from forgiveness, true peace grows with attentiveness. We listen to God's voice in our quest for peace. Notice verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace, there's that word, to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Now I want you to notice as thoughtful listeners and observers, this is the only time in the whole song where an individual is focused. It's the only time there's a singular. It's all collective except for right here. So what's going on? What's going on is that antiquity, when God's covenant people worship together, like even sometimes today, in the midst of corporate worship, there was a pause and a single soloist gave a small refrain. So here you have in the liturgy an individualist sol- individual soloist expressing his or her, her word for the whole. The pursuit of peace requires listening to God's voice and it is an essential aspect of prayer and corporate worship is listening together to God's voice. Attentiveness to God's voice, yes, is an individual discipline that we nourish in our own lives. 
But it is also a community posture of love when we come to worship together. It was Simone Weil who said this brilliantly. She said, love ultimately is focused attention. And that is true on an individual level, on a human relational level, and in a corporate worship level. We can't love God or others well if we do not listen well. Listening attentively to God's voice and loving God rightly are inextricably linked. So when we gather for corporate worship, is our attention focused or are minds and hearts distracted? How about right now? See, perhaps one of the reasons why inner peace is so elusive for us is that we often do not listen well. And could not listening well be the very folly the psalmist is referring to here in verse 8? I think so. When you trace this word and this idea in the Old Testament, folly is often not listening well, of which wisdom is a derivative. The messy history of God's people would seem to bear this out to me. How about us? How about us? Are we growing in attentiveness to God, to his voice, and could it be that our greatest folly is not rebelling against God, but failing to listen to him? So let me ask, what keeps us from listening to God's voice well? I want to suggest four reflections for our application this morning. Four barriers to listening to God's voice well. First, unrepentant hearts. Sin that we have not dealt with in confession, repentance, and faith is like static or background noise that keeps us from hearing God's still small voice. Corporate worship is designed for us to come together and to regularly examine the thoughts and motivations of our hearts. It's a time to reflect our life priorities, the ordering of our heart loves, our sins of both omission and commission. It is a time when we gather together to examine areas that need attention in our lives, at work, at school, or at home. Corporate worship, by design, confronts us with the need for repentance. But also, secondly, a barrier is broken relationships. If we are unwilling to attempt to make right strained or broken relationships with others, hearing God's voice is increasingly difficult. New Testament writers describe that in a marriage. If our relationship is not right with our spouse, our prayers are hindered. Think of the implications in all dimensions of human reality. I have noticed a tendency in my own life, and maybe you have as well, that when my relationships with others are not right, my relationship with God is usually not right. And when my relationship with God is not right, my relationship with others I work with and serve with and our neighbor with and my family are not right either. They go hand in hand. So let me ask you very specifically, not someone next to you, is there a relationship in your life that needs attention this week, today? Maybe someone in your family. Maybe someone sitting in this room. Maybe someone in your class this week at school. 
maybe someone in the cubicle next to you at, at work. Do you need to take a step towards seeking reconciliation with that person? Unrepentant hearts, broken relationships. Third, distracted and hurried lives. Many of us do not listen well to God as well as to others in our life. Frankly, it's because there's just so much noise in our lives, so many distractions. Sherry Turkle has a wonderful new book called Reclaiming Conversation. The subtitle is The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. And she continues to point out with many, many others the sounds are rising of the incredible detrimental impact to relationships and to our soul of an overplugged life. She writes, these days we may mistake time on the net for solitude. In fact, solitude, she writes, is challenged by our habit of turning to our screens rather than inward to our souls. Let's be honest. A frenzied pace and attentive life do not go well together. Almost any quiet moment we have is filled with our cell phones. And somehow we can't stand the silence. And it's not because it is too quiet. It is because our hearts and minds are too loud. What we need is not another distraction in our life. We need room for the inner peace that God wants to give you this Advent. Perhaps the most important thing you can do this Advent is to have a tech fast, to unplug from your cell phone for a while and slow the pace of your life and noise down. If your heart feels empty, if God seems increasingly distant and his voice seems absent, perhaps you are too busy and your life is too noisy to hear him speak. Fourth is spiritual isolation. Isolation in any dimension is brutal for the human. Listen, I saw a fantastic movie. It's an indie movie. It's a Swedish movie. Maybe you've seen it. I come from Sweden, my, my dad's side, so I always love those movies. Uh, thankfully, there was English subtitles. But it's called A Man Called Obey. Name, a Man Called Obey. And in this movie, I won't tell you the details of it. I think it's a really good movie. There's an amazing phrase that someone says is, you can't cope with life alone. That's exactly right. Psalm 85 reminds us of anything here. If it does anything at all, it is that hearing God's voice is not something we do only alone, but something we do together on a regular basis. This is one of the compelling reasons why regular participation, participation in corporate worship is so vital for your life and mine. It's one of the compelling reasons why Jesus designed the local church and why the New Testament writers admonish us to not neglect regular worship attendance and participation because it is a peril of our own spiritual isolation. You and I were created with community in mind and we are redeemed with community in mind. It's called the local church. The peace our hearts so long for is found in greater attentiveness to God's voice someone we hear not only personally, but also collectively. We must learn to listen well. If we're gonna pursue the peace that our hearts long for, we need to ask God for forgiveness. We need to listen to his voice and notice where this beautiful song goes. We delight in God's presence. 
This song builds in a lyrical crescendo and the tone changes. You can hear it. We have moved from repentance to focused attention to joyful, giddy delight. The peace that God's covenant people so long to experience, now they bask together, delighting in God's presence with them and the good future before them. Look at verses 9 through 13. Hear it again. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. The glory that dwells in our land, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other, faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, it's not just yes, yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. One of the finest Old Testament Hebrew scholars that's ever lived describes this verse, this section with these words, and I think he's spot on. He says, this is one of the most satisfying descriptions of concord. He's using Old English, that's peace. One of the most satisfying descriptions of peace, spiritual, moral, and material, to be found anywhere in Holy Scripture. I agree. It's not only poetically beautiful, it's stunning. What a portrait of shalom is painted here on the canvas of Holy Scripture. Together in worshipful song, God's covenant people experience a kind of rapturous relational afterglow of delight. That's how I describe it. When the relationship with God collectively is restored. The God who has seemed distant has now come near to them and noticed the language, his love, his faithfulness, his righteousness and peace dance all over and around them. The prophet Zephaniah, I think, captures this brilliantly. This afterglow is what I would call it of God's peace and presence. No matter what the circumstance is, in Zephaniah we hear these words of delight. Listen to these words, and these are words I'm praying for our multi-site congregation. Listen to Zephaniah. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will say. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. When you come to corporate worship, it's not only you that sing, but God sings over you and delights in you. This psalm builds with such beauty. And notice the word kiss. Did everybody catch that? This is not just a romantic embrace. Culturally, in the Semitic world, when there was a frayed relationship, when they came together, they kissed each other on the cheek. And here we have Jesus teaching it, the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that? The father looks for the son who's long gone. He runs back home, and his dad runs to him. And what does the text say? They embrace, and he kisses his son. Jesus' parable looks to the cross where righteousness and peace will kiss like never before. Psalm 85's literary crescendo has this sense of delight and do not miss where the lyrics build. It all builds to this truth. Where true inner peace is found. Peace is not something we strive for. It is someone we find peace in. Notice the text, a righteous person the psalmist looks to in verse 13 with the most incredible anticipation. One whose glorious divine presence will dwell in the land, who's noticed the text, whose footsteps will make way for true peace. Prophet Isaiah described this, right? The one who had come, the prince of peace. New Testament writers describe him as Emmanuel, which means God with us. They point us to his birth and resurrection, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. You hear this word peace all through Jesus' life at his birth. The angels announce the Messiah. What do they say? Peace on earth. When Jesus gathers his disciples the night before his crucifixion, he says, the peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. And the huddled disciples in that fearful room in Jerusalem 
all of a sudden are interrupted by the resurrected Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them? Peace be to you. Why? Because peace has come. He is there with them. Peace is always a person. It is always the person of Jesus. And Jesus will say, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm there with you. Paul describes his peace collectively as God's people gathered for worship, as the peace that passes all understanding, that guards our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The peace your heart longs for, the peace my heart longs for, is found in the person and presence of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And it is a peace that we can experience individually and collectively, no matter the troublesome nature of our life and world. It is found in Jesus and manifested with beauty and transformation in local church community. We can experience true peace because the Prince of Peace has come to this world. His footprints are all over the Old Testament. His classic Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, Philip Brooks pens this heartfelt prayer, O Holy Child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Has peace come to your heart today? That thing, that forever empty we feel, compels us neither to a mindless life of distraction or gnawing despair, but the one who can fill us with eternal fullness now and forever. The one who dances over us, who calls us his beloved, the one who joins us in corporate worship with giddy delight. Blaise Pascal brilliantly described this inner peace, peace we long for and where it can be found. I don't know anyone who's described it better. He writes, what else does this craving, this helplessness proclaim? But there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries or she tries in vain to fill with everything around him or her, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. The Prince of Peace has come. Has he come to your heart and mine? Let's pray. Lord, grant to us in the depths of our own individual troubled hearts and in our community your peace. In Jesus' name.